Hi, this is Chris Tangaridis, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalheads, welcome to another week of Focus on Metal and another week of Metal Month 2014. That's right, we are at week three of Metal Month 2014. Hope you guys have been enjoying all of our Metal Month festivities. Of course, every month here is Metal Month here on Focus on Metal, but hey, if we can celebrate an Actual metal month, why not do it? And of course, as I'm recording this, Bob Nelbandian's Inside Metal movie is playing in theaters all across the country. It's really great to see Bob tweeting that out. It's keep getting tweet after tweet of all the places it's playing. So it's, uh, it's just a pretty cool thing to see. Of course, the uncool thing that we saw this week, or should say didn't see, is that in our own hometown theater that was playing the movie, Nothing, nothing on the marquee about it. No posters up about it at all. I mean, what the hell, right? It's got to be the best film that was playing that night. And there wasn't a word about it on any signage anywhere near the theater. Very bummed out about that. And I hope that since last week, everybody's had a chance to go up to Kickstarter and check out the whole Raven campaign. Pretty cool stuff going on up there. If you haven't, please go check it out. Time is ticking away on that one. So what do we have in store for you here on week three of Metal Month? Nothing but one of the biggest metal producers going that is right. You heard him in the beginning of the show, Chris Tangaridis. We sat down and had a quite lengthy interview with Chris. So lengthy, in fact, that this one is going to actually be a two-parter. Part one this week, part two next week. Chris had tons of great stories, stuff about Pre, stuff about Anvil. Of course, the guys work with so many people that uh, he is just a guy full of stories. So that's what we have going for the next two weeks. But before we dive into our talk with Chris, let's do a track of the week. From Cologne, Germany, I bring you Wolfen, and they have their brand new album out on Pure Legend Records. Yeah, kind of continuing off of last week's kind of mini music discovery. This is one that didn't fit in, but I'm really excited about this album, and I decided I was going to feature it as track of the week this week. Like I said, the band's name is Wolfen. They are out of Germany, and they have a brand new one out called Evolution. Right off the bat, love the name of the album. What's cool about this band is they have this really kind of there's a little bit of prog going on but it's really a matchup of thrash and power metal all just kind of put together and songs kind of have twists and turns and definitely don't get bored with anything on this album at all you just kind of never know where things are going to go place to place never a pattern to, to any of this stuff you can never second guess what's going on and just because I said, you know, it's just this really cool combination of the power metal and the thrash. And of course, uh, this isn't their first album. They had uh, an album out called Don't Trust the White, came out in 2001. 2004, they had Humanity, sold out. Then they had The Truth Behind in 2006. And then two years ago, they had uh, Chapter 4. And now, brand new one out on, like I said, Pure Legend Records, Evolution. 
just, I don't know. I really recommend going out and, and buying this one. Cool tracks on here. Sia Soro, Digital Messiah, The Flood, Chosen One. Just lots of good stuff on here. But for my buddy Richie, it's pretty obvious which song I have to play off of the brand new one from Wolfen. And that is track nine. It's called The Irish Brigade. Need I say more? So here it is off the brand new one from Wolfen. The album is called Evolution. Came out in September. And this one is The Irish Brigade. <laughs> for you like i said is that stuff good or what the whole freaking album is solid like that just a solid chunk of german metal and if you want to pick that one up i would definitely head up to puresteel-shop.com always have killer stuff up there in fact they just released a special limited edition vinyl version of that baby as well so get them while they last so as i said our main metal event this week is our talk with chris tangarides hey i mean look kk downing had an interview with this guy on his steel mill site so we're just following suit and 
like I said, Chris, he's been around doing engineering and stuff since 1975, and the guy has worked with just about freaking everybody. Anvil, King Diamond, Tom Jones, what the hell, right? Judas Priest, Loudness, Momstein. He's got some great Momstein stuff to talk about. Gillen, you know, the Comstock Angels, if you remember them at all. Work with Black Sabbath, Tigers of Pantang. Yep, we'll be talking about some Tigers coming up as well. You know, Gary Moore, Mountain, Rock Goddess, Savage Messiah, Sinner, Overkill, Tiger Tales, TNT, Finn Lizzie. Yeah, you better believe we'll be talking some Lizzie and, you know, Halloween. I mean, you name it, he has probably worked with them and uh, has had a long and storied history with metal engineering and metal production. Definitely one of those guys that everybody looks to when they talk about uh, about engineering and production in metal. So he has done, like I said, the classic stuff like Priest and Tigers and Tokyo Blade, right up to all of the newer stuff that's going on as well. So very cool guy to talk to, very laid back. In fact, we were scheduled to talk to him and we called him up and he was uh, actually walking back from the beach. He said it was one of the last really nice days over in England. Of course, those of you listening over in England, you probably appreciate that Chris wanted to maximize his last good beach days. So after a few minutes of trying to walk and talk, he just kind of goes, yeah, can I call you back? I'm walking back home from the beach. And, uh, you know, called us a short time later. Just, like I said, cool, laid back. Took a couple of hours talking to us, just regaling us with all kinds of stories and answering all our questions and all of that. Just a really cool guy. And as I alluded to, this is a long interview. we got a lot of stuff to go through. And uh, we're going to cut this one in half, do it over two episodes. And since we have so much to go through, then let's just get right into it. All right, listeners, you guys love when we have producers on the show. And I love when we have producers that have massive metal pedigrees. And our guest this week is someone that definitely has that. That is the one and only. You've seen him on so many of your favorite records. Chris Tangaridis. How are we doing today, Chris? I am excellent. Awesome. Definitely excellent. <laughs> well, uh, it's absolutely glorious over here. Uh, the weather is just amazing. And if you're from the UK, all we talk about is the blessed weather. Uh, but it's been amazing. I've just been hanging out on our beach and uh, getting myself ready to uh, start working on the new UFO album. Oh, uh, which I'm really looking forward to. Uh, the thing is, I worked on their two, uh, which were uh, No Heavy Petting and Fawcett albums mm. back in 75 <laughs> when I was assisting. And I haven't seen Phil and the boys since. And we met up a, a couple of months ago. and It was like no time had passed. <laughs> Amazing. Nearly 40 years. Wow. Unbelievable. And did you hear about Pete Way? He's been given the all clear with the cancer. Yes, that is amazing. Yeah, that's great news. So happy. I'm so happy. I, I really am. So I, I haven't heard anything about him playing or having anything to do with the, the recording yet. But, um, you know, getting the all clear is the first step. Yeah. The next thing to get his strength back up because... I, I, I've not been too well this year either, and I know how, how that goes. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's that's great, though. That's that's great to hear that, you know, UFO yeah. going back in again, but even cool that uh, you're going to be helming that one. So looking forward to hearing that one. Oh, absolutely. It, it's It's been a long time coming because, 
you know, I, I worked around about that time in, in in 75, there were some great albums being made at the studios that I had started working at, a place called Morgan in, in London. And there was UFO were in one, Judas Priest were there, I did Sad Wings of Destiny on that as one of my first engineering gigs, um, uh, Black Sabbath were there, Jethro Tull were there, and it's great to, you know, you were an assistant to these people way back when, and then along the line you end up producing it, and it's it's kind of like the natural way of things, if you like. Yeah. It, it, it's amazing. I still can't believe I wake up every day and think, damn, I'm a lucky servant, so, you know, <laughs> you know it's, it's just fabulous. That's what I think, too. Every time I, I'm like... Either here you mentioned in a book by somebody, or I'm looking at an album, and I'm thinking that like, damn, that guy's a lucky bastard. Although, yeah, I know it's a yeah. lot of work too, but you know, definitely you get a lot of fun sure. in there. Oh, it has to be both of it. I mean, it, it kind of mutates into one: the social aspect and the work aspect just melt together because mm. you know, just by the nature of what it is, it's all encompassing. It takes you all of your concentration. You're there for such long periods of time concentrated sort of time with people that, you know, a month, two months making an album with somebody is like the equivalent of a sort of lifetime of marriage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the bond, if you like. Yeah. yeah, Chris, can I ask you a question yeah. on, on the, the Sad Wings album when you were engineering it? Sure. It's gotten this iconic status over the year uh, as, a, as a game changer in the heavy heavy metal music. Um, sure. wh- when you were recording it, did you think that it was like really special album no no or, or any of the other albums there at the time you know a uh, black sabbath album um what was it uh sabbath bloody sabbath a few years before and mm-hmm. uh you don't you you just you know this is that this is what this, these guys do and because uh with priests at the time they would kind of up and coming this was their second album the first one didn't do that well you know by by those days, you know, the standards of those days. Uh, and, they, you know, they, they're going on their gig and they're doing universities and, and large uh, town halls and that kind of uh, side venue. And it was just what was expected of it, you know. Um, it's like anything. When, when you, don't, you never know what's going to happen with something that you've recorded because there's a different... Um, ethic to it if you like you're there to make a it's a job as well as a, a creative thing but you're there to try and make the best possible recording you can and it's only down to the level of songs the performances that these guys do that eventually the the, the fans that buy this will deem it either you know iconic or just another record mm. you know um, and you can't you know, you always go into it thinking, yeah, you know, I'm going to do the best I can and I want the musicians to do the best they can. But you can never know that it's going to be, how it's going to be received, whether it's going to be a, a classic or not, as they say. But my barometer, my the way I, I figure it out is, well, if I like it from a fan's point of view, would I buy this? Is the way I have to sort of um, think about it. Mm. And if I can satisfy that within me, then I know that's the right kind of thing to do because people are very like-minded in, in the, in the metal uh, society. Uh, they all kind of have this thing that, that bonds us all together. 
and know what's kind of good instantly when you hear it. You know, it's marvellous. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. When you go from Sad Wings and then, of course, you produce the Painkiller album, and after, yeah. you know, looking at the albums that they had done before that, when you went in and did that with them and they, you know, brought those songs in, were you like, bloody hell, where did this thing come from? Because it's, it's so amazingly different. Yes, yeah. I mean, genuinely, I, it's a, a cool story because obviously they knew me from, from years gone by, and they were very, um, uh, we'd lost contact a bit. Uh, I was off doing my thing. They were off touring and becoming the mighty priest, as it were. And they were watching um, um, MTV in the States, and this band came on, heavy band called Slave Raider from um, Twin Cities. That's right, yeah, Minneapolis they were. Uh, and basically, uh, they they were astounded by the sound of this this record that they were hearing on through... Uh, little TV speaker, did their homework, found it was me doing it, called me up and went, how on earth did you get that bass sound and blah, 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 and you think we could? And I said, well, of course we can. They then played me. We went over to Spain where they were living at the time, to Glenn's house, and he played me a guitar and drum machine demo of this song he was going to call Painkiller. I listened to it and it was like, well, oh my God, even that, just one guitar and a drum box doing its thing. I said, where on earth are we going to get a drummer that can play that? Oh, we've got one. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, they certainly did. And that kind of helped a lot with Scott being, you know, coming in, me coming in with my whatever ideas that I had. And, it, and those great songs that they came up with. And we made this record, and I'm so glad people like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I definitely think that Scott Travis gave the band a kick up the arse that it, that it needed. Uh, I think, yeah, I mean, with you know, they, they were being held back by uh, the previous drummer because, well, the past three albums, I believe, up until we got to Painkiller, they were drum machines, hmm. basically. It wasn't a real drummer playing. Yeah. Um, so it was, I said, I'm going to do this. I want everybody to play together. 
as a band, and we'll replace the guitars afterwards and whatever needs to be done. But I want the drummer to play with the band that he's in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so we get that atmosphere going. And honest to goodness, what you hear on that record, the only sample that, that's there is a snare sample that sits underneath his snare drum. You hear everything, nothing else, is, and it's played. And there's no quantizing, there's no... There wasn't any back then that I knew of anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this, yeah. you got a co-write on that, Chris, if I'm correct, on uh, A Touch of Evil. Yeah, I, yeah that, that was interesting. Can you tell us how, how that track came about, that yeah. you got a co-write? Um, that's right. We, we were in um, a play, the studio uh, was a place called Miraval in uh, south of France that we were recording at which uh, ironically now belongs to Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie at their French summer house. <laughs> so, damn, there goes a great studio. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> by the way, um, I had just uh, been sent over um, this CD that I had made of songs uh, that I had written for library music. Basic sort of heavy metal grooves and whatever. There was a, a you know... We want you to make an album so that when Mr. Film Director wants a bit of nondescript, styly, heavy metal in the background, they can come to the library, pick that, and they don't have to pay ACDC a million quid to use something, for example. So fantastic. So I had this particular tune, which was called Touch of Evil. I was playing it through the, the speakers one morning before the, we started the session, and Glenn walked in. So I asked her, what's that? And I said, oh, it's this album that I've written for this uh, uh, music library. He said, play it again. So I did. And he said, that's really good, you know. He said, do you think we can use it? And I went, um, yeah, I think so. <laughs> and that's how that came about. Rob came up with the lyrics, the title and all the riffs were there. And Glenn threw in um, some arrangement ideas and, and the chorus part and the middle eight section and, and there you go. Okay. And there we sit. <laughs> okay. And you've got you've got a if memory serves, you've got a co-write as well on the demolition record with Ripper Owens. Is is that kind That's of the same right. deal? It, it, uh, no, that was um it was some other songs that I had written uh that he liked a lot. Uh, I had a band with a Korean artist, uh the two of us it was called Monochrome. Mm -hmm. And that's where uh, Metal Messiah comes from. We had the song, it's called Machine Messiah. And Glenn took that, uh, my original 24 track take, uh, recording of that, and started putting on the priest guitars and uh, changing arrangements and new lyrics. Uh, and basically that's how that came about. And Subterfuge was uh, a demo that I had written uh, for something, because I mean, I'm constantly, you know, when I've got a minute or two, you know, write, start, mm -hmm. record it, and you never know what's going to happen, you know. If, and that that kind of that's how that happened, and so I was very grateful to them for wanting to use my stuff. But to be fair, we, it just goes to show we do think very similarly. We're very alike mm -hmm. in the styles and 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 the types of songs that that we both like. Which is why it comes very, very natural and easy to priest to work, fit into my stuff or my stuff to fit into priest stuff, whichever way you want to look at it. Yeah. Okay. So 
you know, I'm very proud of that, I have to say, because, you know, I'm still a fan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And of course, you know, yeah. we don't even have enough time in the day to go through like every band you've been involved with. I mean, it's it's pretty oh, damn impressive. Yeah. But one of the ones that, you know, is kind of like the one of the hallowed names in, in Nawabam, of course, is Tigers of Pantang. What always intrigued yeah. me of Tigers was the fact that you went in and did the Wildcat album. And then when yeah. you went in and do Spellbound, were you like, when you went to do that album, were you like, what happened to the rest of the band? Like, who are all these new guys? Did that Was that like exactly. a pain in the butt? <laughs> Well, it was, we did Wildcat, and that, I mean, you know, I went away on holiday, uh, came back to find that the thing was, had charted very high up, I think it was number 13 in the British charts, the official real deal kind of thing. And we met up with, I uh, never forget, with Rob and Rocky and Brian, uh, in, in a cafe in King's Cross in London, looking at each other going, I think we've got to hit album, boys. What's going on here? <laughs> and it was from that moment, though, that they, Rob and the rest of the guys, had decided that they needed to up the game a bit with another guitar player to fill out the sound and another singer that had more of a dynamic range than Jess. Mm. And that's what happened there. And that comes out, and we're suddenly doing um, much, much bigger venues, you know, the Odeon Cinema, three and a half thousand seater type places. Yeah. And that was amazing, you know, for, for a second album, for, for them to, do, you know, as a heavy metal band, to get to that level so quickly, because there they wasn't much time between Wildcat and Spellbound, mm. it was really, seemed like we, as soon as we finished Wildcat, we were back doing that. And, you know, off we went. Yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, I, I've done that 
now, this well, from last year, um, with the Choir Boys, uh, an album we made that came out in May last year, and another one came out this this June, wow. like literally a year later. Um, <laughs> plus a load of live recordings. There's a triple set deal. I don't know if you've seen it, celebrating their 30th anniversary. Oh, nice. Uh, the Choir Boys, yeah, and honestly, it's going down amazingly well. In fact, they're, they're over in the States in August, okay. in, a, in, a, in a week or so time, doing a, a full tour, which is the first time since the heyday, almost 30 years ago. Mm. Yeah, that, they're back in the States doing it. Yeah, that, it's amazing. That's Spike's really band, good. isn't it? That's Spike's band. That's right, yeah, absolutely. That's yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember them when Fabulous. I yeah, yeah, I'm actually surprised that they haven't been advertising the crap out of that in classic rock. Oh, well. Because they love the well, Choir Boys. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you'll find, you know, they, they have a really good uh, new team behind the manager and record company and so on. And we've just gelled like, you know, it's meant to be. Yeah, fantastic. We get on very, very well. We come from the same kind of era, although I'm a little older. <laughs> uh, but... You know, they, they kind of a bit misunderstood when they first started. People were kind of looking at them to be kind of like a, an L.A.-style band, you know, uh, an L.A. gun style you know, Motley Crue-y, you know, hair and makeup and whatnot. But really, you're talking more not the hoople, the faces, Rod Stewart kind of deal, you know, Rolling Stones, you know, rock and roll yeah. in its traditional kind of uh, thing. And now that they've gone that much older, they've matured into a really good sort of jamming band, but with kind of organized chaos, if you like, <laughs> you know, and really phenomenal still to this day, you know. So, yeah, yeah if they play in your area, do go and check them out because you, you will have a good time. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. That sounds cool because that is, you know, you're right. That That is kind of a thing. It does remind me a lot of the faces. That's what I used to love about the faces. You saw them live was the yeah. fact that except for Kenny, who was this rock solid on the beat drummer, you never knew what That's the right. other guys were going to do. And it, and it made for a great oh, show. Man. Yeah, exactly right. You, you know, it was a party. You mm. know, they even had a bar on stage, the faces, which I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Go over and have a drink while somebody's doing a solo. <laughs> oh, man, of course, I know we can't talk to you without Richie having to ask at least uh, one question about Thin Lizzy. Uh, he'll he'll uh, kill yeah. me if I don't let him talk about Thin Lizzy. Uh, yeah, I, I got I to <laughs> ask, yeah, Thin Lizzy. Um, but I'm not going to really ask about Phil. I want to talk a little bit about the other guys in the band. Was there anybody else? Well, for me, I think Brian Downey is probably one of the most underrated drummers out there. Yeah. Um, I, I just think, I saw him play a couple of years ago when Ricky Warwick was with him. I never got a chance to see them in their heyday. And I just think uh, he, I just think he's an incredible drummer. He's got great swing to you know his style. You just nailed it, Richie. Absolutely right. He he. I mean, I do not recall ever having to stop a take in because Brian Downey messed up. You know what I mean? I really don't have any memory of Brian and Phil actually, the two of them ever cocking up a, a, a take. Oh. They were just just rock solid, and you know, without Brian in anybody that calls themselves Thin Lizzy, it just isn't the same. 
Yeah. You can't, you can't, you know, I mean, that groove that he and Phil would lay down together was the, the heart and soul of that band, you know. Um, and you're right, uh, I mean, Brian Downey is one of the, the world's most underrated player, but not with musicians. Every musician I know knows that he's the boy, you know. Yeah. And it's, that's great, absolutely. Yeah, now when you did the Renegade album with with Snowy, yeah. do you do you do you remember Snowy being the quiet guy? Was he forceful trying to get his songs yeah, on the album? No, 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 not at all. He was he's a lovely, lovely guy, uh, Snowy. Uh, great player in, in his genre. He he loved the blues. Uh, the thing was, his kind of lifestyle and their lifestyle was chalk and cheese. Yeah, and I don't think he was particularly happy being around that situation, you know, um, and that was it. I mean, there was no, I mean, you can't fault his play and he was, he still is, you know, a marvellous, absolutely brilliant uh, guitar player. Yeah. But uh, as far as Lizzie's concerned, it, it was since, you know, they decided to, to have the, the two guitar players, you know, it's got to have that dynamic between the, the pair of the guitar, whoever's up front with Scott, to, you know, to, to step up and, you know, do the rock and roll thing, really. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, obviously the Robbo and uh, Gorham lineup was pretty much a, a seriously happening lineup. Mm. But the Gary Moore and Scott was also amazing. You know, uh, the uh, you know Black Rose album. I mean, the songs on that and the playing on that because every time Scott had somebody that was like, you know, basically Gary, his playing would improve a million percent. You know, he would step up to it because, Jesus, i got to follow that. And he would, <laughs> you know, and, and it was great for everybody, you know. I mean, that lineup was phenomenal. So, uh, you know, who knows what would have happened, you know. They didn't, you know, die. <laughs> yeah, and of course... Of course Renegade was the first album, I believe, to feature Darren Wharton on keyboards. Well, he was actually um, on Chinatown. Oh, okay. But he didn't get a credit. You know, he was the guy sitting behind everything. Okay. Uh, behind the stacks. But um, from Renegade onwards, he was, you know, acknowledged, if you like. And Thunder and Lightning was, he was full-on, definite member, you know, with the same privileges as all the rest of them, if you like, you know. He earned his stripes because he was dead young, really, Darren. You know, we were the same age. Yeah. <laughs> we were little puppies working yeah. with our heroes. <laughs> yeah. Chris, were you consulted at all before they got John Sykes into the band because you'd worked with, him with Tigers? Well, I, it was my fault that he joined. <laughs> it really was. Um, he was he was staying with me after the... Um, he left the Tigers and didn't know what quite what to do with himself. So I said, have you, have you got any tunes? Why don't we try and get a deal? And basically, he had a couple of songs. I sent them off to MCA, which the Tigers were signed up to at the time. And they went for it. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> they went for us recording this. And especially when I got Phil and Brian to play on, on the song. And that's where Phil met John. And it was really funny because uh, we were in Dublin and it was time to get John to come over 
to do this. And Phil had forgotten <laughs> that something was supposed to be doing. And he's asking me in the car when we go to pick him up, what's this guy like? Is he any good? You know, because this time, you know, he'd, you know, they parted ways with snow. And I said, well, yeah, he is really good. And, you know, he's got some hair because Scott had just cut his hair at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Phil are always into the image, you know. And he takes one game and thinks, oh, well, it's fit in. And then he heard him play, and there you go. He's in the band. Yeah. So it's all my fault, your worship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Thunder Lightning is, is easily their heaviest album. Easily. It's got yeah. Cold Sweat on it, the title track. It, but it does have some quieter moments, like the sun goes down is on that, uh, that yeah, record. Uh, that, yeah, that's one of my favourite um, songs, The Sun Goes Down. And it, uh, ironically, it, it, Scott does a solo on that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. beautiful, you know, uh, amazing, you know. It's very special, that record for me, because it's kind of one of the pivotal ones, like um, the Sad Wings one. Uh, was was did something for my well, it kicked off my career in as as much as the direction I would sort of end up in, best known in in, in the rock music, I guess. Uh, and then <clears throat> we did I did Gary Moore's solo record, which is how I met Phil because Phil played on it uh, as well on the single <clears throat> called Parisian Walkway. Mm-hmm. It's a big hit. Suddenly, I'm a producer, you know. Oh, great. <laughs> woo And then uh, we started working on um, uh, different days. We would either be working on one of Phil's solo albums or working on what was Gary's solo album, Back on the Street. Um, so I got to know Phil quite a bit there and then. And a few years later, it was the call. Come and, you know, I, I want you to to produce us. And I thought, well, I'll just check my diary. Yep, I'm free for the next let's let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I honestly couldn't believe it because I was still incredibly young for really for what I was I was doing. Um twenty two, twenty three years old, something like that. And to me, I, I'm still fanboy because there they were, you know, these guys that I used to go and watch and buy records and suddenly there I am, you know, going down as the producer. And ironically, <laughs> my wife, Jane, um, was a huge Thin Lizzy fan, and she always wondered how you pronounce this funny producer's name, Chris Tessetta, and you know, ironically, it's her name now. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's really weird the way that was synergy going on with, with them, you know, and, and Gary, really. Yeah.
Yeah, I've got to ask Chris about Gary. Did did he ever talk yeah. about his time in Lizzie that maybe there was a little bit of unfinished business there when he left after the Black Rose record? Oh, yeah, definitely. There was, you know, I mean, I would have loved... I know had Phil survived, uh, there would have been a, a Lizzie get back, you know, no two ways about it. They were talking about that before he died. Yeah. And I'm sure there would have been a Gary involvement with Phil because it was like, you know, like any sort of brothership, marriage, whichever way you look at it, there'd be tears and fights and whatever one day and the next day it will be back to normal and only a brother can do that to another brother. Yeah. You know, it, it's, you know, forgotten. Now here at the moment you say whatever the hell it is and then, then you don't. It's forgotten and there was that relationship between me and Gary, and Gary and Phil had that thing going on as well. And, well, I never ever had a, uh, an argument with Phil, to be fair, which is pretty good. <laughs> um, you know, that's why I carried on working with Gary, you know, doing this and that album, then another one, and then they'd get fed up with each other and he'd go off and do something else, and then, hey, man, what do you think? Come on, let's do it, you know. Mm. And, you know, that's that's kind of the way it was, you know, I mean, really, Gary and, and, and me and our families, our, our family, you know, we're, he's my son's godfather, for example, and I'm one of his son's godfathers, and it was all, you know, that family thing mm. together, yeah. you know, always at each other's houses on a Sunday, you know, whatever. It was It was more than just, you know, a client you know, <laughs> you're after producing them and you don't see them again. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, ongoing. Yeah. And I mean, I, I can only imagine how, you know, what sort of music we would have been able to be producing now with all the people that we all got to know over the years and, you know, the, the list of musicians we could have called on to, to do in the various projects and who knows, it, it could have been absolutely wonderful, I guess, but... We'll never know. Really. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, it was, you know, Gary's kind of an interesting guy, too, that I think that a lot of, a lot of, especially a lot of metal fans, younger metal fans today, they don't even really know much about him because, you yeah. know, he started to go back and, and do the blues. And of course, obviously, with, right. he did still got the blues and got such a great reaction. He seemed to stay on that path. But I mean, you, you take right. somebody now and you play him something like off a of corridors of power and they're like, wow, yeah. who's this guy? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, yeah, ironically, those records, the, the heavy rock records, I guess, that he made when he was with Virgin, did very, very well for him. They were all gold albums, you know. Um, uh, but when he got back to the blues, that was more than gold. It was multi-woohoo everywhere. Yeah. Uh, even in the States, it went gold there. And, you know, fantastic achievement. So I guess, you know, it gave him the confidence to keep going along that path to do these blues things. But... Again, he was one that would just, you know, he did a drum and bass album, for goodness sake, which me wasn't my cup of tea particularly, but I'd give it to him that he, he, he went for the art first and foremost, art of the music, as opposed to, well, if I do this, I'll make a load of money kind of thing. You know, so, but, you know, it kind of confused the fans especially rock people, you know, they, they want their, 
heroes to be just that, the hero, play your guitar, give it some balls, you know, rock. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're swapping and changing from blues to, to you know, yeah, disco music or whatever the hell it was, they, they just didn't know where, what was going on. Right. And I guess he lost a bit of, of the credibility within them, mm. uh, the, the music buyers uh, before. And I guess that kind of, you know, didn't help the career so much. But having said that, he was always, you know, the, the, one of the finest guitar players I've ever known and worked with, genuinely. I mean, I've worked with so many amazing players and they are all, you know, but there was no one like him. He was, you know, you can say Jeff Beck, you can say Jimmy Page, Jimmy Hendrix, you can say Gary Moore in the same breath because he was, he was that unique. Mm, yeah. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. So, Chris, can I ask you um, about the Y&T album you worked on, Mean Streak? Oh, um, yeah. I think a lot of Y&T fans probably think that that was their last classic album before the record company yeah. got, got involved. Yeah. Do you remember yeah. having any of the record company in your ear when that album was being made? Well, that was, it was really, um, I was, I, I knew who the band were, of course, and I was in uh, Toronto in 1983 doing, uh, what was it called, in January, February, uh, Metal on Metal with, not Metal on Metal, um, Forged and Fire, uh, with Anvil. Mm -hmm. I finished that album and I was told, you know, they told me about, you know, why you're interested in you doing it. So I said, sure. They flew me down to San Francisco when I finished that. We had a meeting together. I decided, yep, let's do it. I went home for a week back to the UK and then came back. And it was, you know, with all respect, they could have been an English hard rock band in the style they played, you know, and A&M were fantastic. They just said, what do you need? Oh, well, we need so many weeks here and that and that. Yeah, there you go. No problem. And not one person bothered us with what kind of songs are you doing? What's this? You know, the, you know no interference left to our own artistic devices. So it comes out and it does what it does and everyone's ecstatic about it. Great reviews, sales, blah, blah, blah. Fantastic. Time to do the follow-up to that. And they had this um, manager, uh, a guy called Scott Spure, uh, and they said, would you mind if we brought in a songwriter? Hey? I said, me, what? What do you what? For Y&T, a songwriter? Are you crazy? <laughs> what? No, well, you know, the guys think, you know commercial and blah, blah. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. And I, I said, I don't think you need one. I think you're doing... And, well, they got the songwriter, whatever, and did, was it, that um, Summertime Girls, whatever. They moved over to Geffen and were trying to become one of those, you know, corporate styly bands, you know, get rid of a drummer because he's ugly or whatever. And they did, I mean, Leonard Hayes, for goodness sake, you know, I saw Ian Gillen later when we got, I did an album with Ian and I got Leonard to be the drummer. That's right. And Ian Gillen saying, yeah, saying to him, I haven't seen a foot as fast as that since Ian Pace. Mm -hmm, yeah. You know, I mean, Leonard was a unique drummer, you know. Um, but that's what I mean. I'm just trying to, to, to show you the level of interference that they fell into mm -hmm. um, and thought that was the way to go 
to uh, you know to to become big or whatever. When in fact all they needed to do was just carry on in what they were doing because each album was doing better and better and better. Yeah. And uh, you know, Mean Street was fully recouped. <laughs> we kept royalties, all sorts. You know, it did very well. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure the others after that did did you know well uh, whatever. All I'm saying is that. I didn't agree with getting other people involved. To me, it was a hard rock act that had a great guitar player, who had a great voice, and all the band were superb. Mm. Um, I, I was still mates. I see them virtually every year when they're over here or some festival in Germany or something, you know. Fantastic. I have the greatest respect and love for them, but it was just a shame that that happened after that because I think they could have been just, you know, few steps higher up the run of the ladder, you know. Yeah. about the Sabbath album The Eternal Idol oh yeah personally <laughs> I, I love that record I think it's very underrated I, mm. I love Tony Martin singing w- yeah. w- when you got involved in that record um, yeah. how, 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 how bad a shape was it in? It was, uh, here's what <laughs> they told me uh, there's a few solos to record and um, mix it it's about three weeks <laughs> yeah okay fair enough I went and met Tony um, in London in a hotel there and started talking away and talking about the old times because I used to work with them back uh, at Morgan Studios. So I, they knew me, I knew them, whatever. And, um, well, we go into Air London uh, Studios and Tony said, oh, I don't like this place. I said, well, okay, we'll move back to Battery Studios, which used to be... Norman Studios, and I knew he was familiar with that, as I was, and that had all been well and fine. But before we moved, uh, I remember going to lunch with uh, Ray Gillen, bless him, and Eric Singer, <laughs> who played the drums on it, and Ray just said, I- I- I've got to leave, you know, things aren't happening, you know, management hassle, politics, I don't know what was going on, so he disappeared. 
And then Eric telling me, asking me, what's, what's Gary Moore like? I said, he's great. I said, why? He said, well, he wants me to join his band. <laughs> okay, so he goes. So suddenly there's me and Tony sat there looking at each other going, well, that's all good. What do we do now? And <laughs> one, of, one of their um, management team uh, knew Tony, Martin. And basically he came in and we sung it really well, pretty damn quick. But there was a whole lot more to do than just a few guitar tones left. <laughs> but six months later, <laughs> we finally finished the thing. Um, but I like the tunes on there. Some of them are absolutely stunning. Yeah. Great Tony riffs. But he could sit there right now and play you 10 different riffs and you've got another album and it all will be brilliant. He just comes out with it. It just flows. He's ultimate. He really is that good, you know, uh, playing and writing stuff. I love it. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Really, really great. Yeah. Really good. I know the album didn't do that well and it didn't tour that well on it, but I loved it. Oh, the politics behind it, guys. My God. I mean, you know, where do I begin? Because that's another five years of interview to, to tell you what was going on there. But <laughs> considering everything, I mean, they, they managed to get themselves... Uh, uh, in the bad books for playing in a place called Sun City mm, yeah. in uh, South Africa. So, right, okay, they're racist, they're this, they're that. Played about tosh, you know, of course they're not. It was a gig and whatever, but I mean, everybody played there. That was the thing, but it was a quiet press week. <laughs> they, they put them in, you know, for, for the story. So, what can I say? Yeah. Oh, you know. I want to ask you as well, Chris, about um, your work with Ingve Malmsteen. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, yeah. How, how do you tell Ingve that he has to do something again? <laughs> well, you don't because it's, it's, it's perfect in the first time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, with me, he listened. I think I hold the record as being, you know, one of the longest standing people to work with. And we did five albums all together. Mm. And he he would listen. He would listen to anything I had to say. Yeah. You know, uh, and after working with him a few times, and, you know, I basically specced out his studio for him at home, figured out, you know, set up his amps and, you know, how easily done so that when I was not there and he wanted to put down some, some stuff for demos or whatever, just turn the machine on, press go, and, and there he was, you know. But he, he's he's astounding. Uh, when you know, back then there was some drinking issues, I guess. But you know, everybody has got something that, that they like to do. Mm. But even despite all that, he would still amaze you by his playing. I could be sitting there looking at these fingers going, you know, two feet away, going, "How the blooming heck does he do that?" It's ridiculous. It's so good. He is really, honestly, a gifted individual when it comes to that. You know, it was from the first album, really. Um, I basically, you know, we were talking about bass guitar um, and how, you know, the bass player had done it with the drums. It was sounding fantastic. He said, oh, that's going to be really good when I, you know, I'm going to overdub the bass with my uh, Rickenbacker and... Uh, this um, direct injection business, uh, what was it? Um, 
Uh, Schultz uh, had invented it. Oh, the Rockman. That's it, yes. Well, yes, right. So that was it. And I went, are you crazy? Listen to that. He goes, no, no, man, you won't. I said, have you got your last album? Yeah, I said, put it on. I said, that sounds like a demo. <laughs> yeah, check this out. And I played in the track we just recorded, which was a, a guitar, a keyboard, drums, and, and the bass. And he went, dude, you're right. And that was the end of that. So from that point that I could, I showed him, not by, you know, arguing or anything, but literally showed him what we'd done. And he was playing it and he heard his guitar in its, you know, infinite glory. It was, it was fine. He was looking really easy to work with. You know, I mean, there's horror stories all around, but of course. And he, but, you know, deep down underneath all that bravado, he's, uh, I think he's a sweetheart. Yeah. Now, the, the, insp- the inspiration record you did with him when he did all the, the, the songs that inspired him, he had all yeah. the, he had the old singers come in and sing. Yeah. What was, what was yeah. the tension like in the studio? Because Joe Lynn Turner was one of them. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it was, they, they weren't all there waiting for each other to finish, which was good. One would do his bit, then it'd go away, and then the next one would fly him in and, and, and do that. Okay. Um, so it was just like having, you know, uh, we didn't play anybody, you know, we didn't play Martin Bowles, Joe Lynn's Turner thing, or Jess Scott's Hotel, or whatever. Mm-hmm. It, it was just, you know, that's a hear your three tunes or two or whatever it was, and, and I think that went. Mm. Again, very, very easy to work with um, because they could all sing. Yeah. And you only ever get problems, really, back in, in the day when there wasn't really much you could do about fixing an out-of-tune voice. <laughs> you basically had to do it correctly. Yeah. And sometimes it could take forever or it could take two minutes if they knew how to sing and, and knew the tune, etc. Uh, and that was what was great about, you know, it was the good old days, if you like. You know, I don't want to use that because... But it, it, it was, you know, there was a quality control within the recording industry, whether you liked it or not. Uh, and pretty much the only way to make a professional record was to be with a recording company who would front you the money to enable you to do it. But they would only do that if they thought, A, they could make money off you, and, you know, B, that you could write and, and perform well. Which then, you know, when you're talking about someone that has a big budget, then you would look down and get a producer that was sympathetic with a style of music and off you went. And pretty they weren't that daft the recording companies back then because they knew if they'd spent 100, 200 grand on an album that they would make their money back, you know, and a lot quicker than the band because of the percentage thing, you know. Um so that was a good thing in that respect. You know, that was why we had quality albums pretty much. You know, of course, there were the odd ones that crept in underneath. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but generally, it was kind of good. Yeah. As opposed to now, you know, making records in your bedroom and, and all this crap, it's just not fair yeah. to the artist. So anyway, because you, know, you spent 20 years learning how to play guitar, for example. Well, what gives you, how, where do you get the 20 years of producing to be able to record your stuff in the way that it should be recorded? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can remember being in the studio 
and, and doing like a 12 string guitar track and, and do the whole track. And then I walked back in the booth and the engineer was that G string. You were like half a cent off. And I'd be like, no, yeah. no, no. When he'd play it back and this guy had like amazing ears and he'd be like, son of a yeah. bitch. You're right. All right. You're do right, it yeah. again. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and there's also something about coming together of a group of four or five music, musicians from a band in a recording studio to make this album. Mm. You know, uh, and all the shenanigans, the pranks, the jokes, the good times, you know, the, the, the playing, the magic moments of recording, all that is essential. To, to finishing off, well, here is our black vinyl record. There you go. Mm. Uh, and it's still true now. You know, if you do have a recording where everyone's been there, um, uh, you know, that vibe, atmosphere, whatever you want to call it, comes through, comes across in the music, whether it's supposed to be happy or sad style or whatever. It really does make a big difference as opposed to some you know, clever spot in a, in a um, uh, bedroom with the, the latest plugins and God knows what, mm-hmm. you know, doing it on his own. Be pretty lifeless and soulless, really. You know, so I guess that's what it is, really. It, it's getting that soul into it, that human element, mm-hmm. you know, the imperfections of the human being, which we all feel. Yeah, even like when I've done internet projects, and yeah. people, I you know, I'll, I'll send my track back to them, and I always get yeah. back. It's all one long track because now everybody does little parts, like measure by measure mm-hmm. and stuff. And they'll be back, and they'll be like, "You did one whole track." I'm like, "Well, that's what I, I grew up with tape. That's what I know how to do. I know how to track yes. the entire song." Yeah. And you you get the exactly. feel. You start to get the nuance of the song when you do that, as opposed to a regimented beat by beat type of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it's yeah. So, I mean, having said that, I think it's kind of coming back a bit mm. in, in, the, in, the, in the industry where people uh, and, you know, want to get back to doing it. And it's coming back from the older bands, for example, mm. are wanting to do like we used to do it. Everyone, off you go. And if anyone makes a mistake, we can fix it afterwards, you know, after the, the track's gone down. Yeah. Uh, because things are separated, you know, it makes no difference. So that's a good thing. And I, to be fair, that's, you know, unless it's, you know, it's some kind of electronic music that I'm doing, um, everything else is done as a performance. Yeah. You know? Even some bands are really cool now. They're doing it halfway where they'll make, they'll, you know, they yeah. got to figure out where to spend their budget. So then maybe they'll spend their budget on getting a really great drum room and get everybody yeah. there and maybe just at least interact with the drummer while he's playing. Yeah, so exactly. you start to get that groove, yeah. you know, as yeah, opposed to right. regimented. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I do get them to play the clicks, you yeah. know. Uh, because that's our that's our conductor, yeah, and it should be looked upon as a conductor, uh, you know, as, as a, a measure of where you are, as opposed to you trying to catch up with the click or slow it. You know, you should ignore it. It's just there to make things. You know, there you go, go in and out of this. You know, milliseconds. Mm. You know, and that gives you the atmosphere. You know, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. 
you know, that's kind of the joys of playing music for me has always been that whole thing that it's, you know, it's not, you're not writing a book there. You're not making everything exact. It's this, it's this really no. kind of touchy feely thing. It's, it's this really that's weird right. connections, you know? That's absolutely right. And, and trying to reach out, whether it's a, at a gig or through a recording, at the listener, mm. for them to, to, to hit that spot, that emotion that you're trying to convey. Right. And once they get it, it's like, a oh, this is brilliant. Yeah. And that's basically what we're doing. And, and without people playing together, that isn't going to happen quite so readily. You know, there's a few geniuses that can, <laughs> can do it, but generally for us poor mortals, you know, it has to be played as as a band. Mm. And, you know, even, like I say, you know, they all play together and there'll be scratch guitars, you know, that I'll take away afterwards and put the new ones where I can open the studio up and use the entire size of the room to add to my guitar sound and not be scared of it bleeding all over the drum mics or, or whatever. Right. And it still works a lot better, you know, because... You know, you could say, I mean, you could argue that the drummer knows the parts and he plays to his metronome without anybody in there. Mm. Fantastic. Yeah, great. But it's few of between that can give the feel, the push and pull dynamic from the guitar player, you know, and the bass player, all of them together, you know, slowing down a little bit fast. And I mean, micro milliseconds. Sure, yeah. But that gives it its thing. And, you know, so... Even if it's, you're going to be replacing the guitars and the bass afterwards with, you know, real sounds, the fact that it's going to be the same people that played the original one, they'll be able to slot into that group, no problem, because yeah. it's them doing it in the first place. Yeah. You see, so, yeah. Do you ever end up using any, doing like any reamping for that as well? Like maybe just record those tracks? I can do, yeah. yeah. I mean, because I have, I use these um, lovely machines made by a company called Damage Control. Mm. Uh, basically, small valve preamps that, you know, plug straight into the board, mm, yeah. the eye, uh, and they've got optical compressors. You get fairly decent sound. You get away with it if I if I play you something and, you know, a bit of reverb on it, whatever, and I'd say that's, you know, that's a 4 by 12 with a Marshall or whatever. Mm. You believe it, you know. Um, but so we use that, but... Sometimes they play something that they never do again, and I can feed that sound out into my whatever. I've got a plethora of weird and wonderful heads mm. uh, that I use and change it like that, you know, if I want to. Uh, or if I want it to, to have some room sound on it, you know, from the guide, which is only one track of the eye guitar, you know, I can do that too, you know. So... It's very useful, and also the fact that it doesn't bleed on all over the drums. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know that, that's the, the greatest thing. <laughs> mm. Yeah, Chris, um, I nearly I ask all the producers this one. Is there one band yeah. out there that you'd love to work for? Right. Is there, a ba- I, I, is, is there one yeah, band out there? I'd love, I'd love to do ACDC. Because ah. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that group of theirs. It's just fabulous. You can't help as soon as you hear one of the two your head just starts going. Yeah. <laughs> you just, you know. And then on the other side, I'd love to do a Pink Floyd album. Ah. That would be awesome. You, 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 and, know, you and every other producer in the world. I oh, think. exactly. You know, <laughs> it's got to be the ultimate indulgence for a producer. Let's put the guitar through a, what's it, and up through the boot. <laughs> 
Sure, the weirder, um, you know, all your crazy ideas that you could think of yeah. would probably find a home within their, their context of that band. And then another one, Aerosmith. The old Aerosmith back in, in the 70s, they, they certainly could do it, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely. Uh, and of course, Led Zeppelin. Oh, here we go. <laughs> but, <laughs> Just, you know, the list keeps growing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely. I think, yeah, you know, one yeah, thing I yeah. see with the ACDC one is, again, you talk about Brian, Brian Downey being kind of that underrated drummer. Yeah. And the same thing with, you know, with Phil Rudd is, Absolutely. you know, put another drummer yeah. in there and go do what Phil does. And I guarantee yeah. you they go, how does he play this? It sounds so simple, yeah. you know, yeah. or they put too many things in it. Don't do all exactly. those fills. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. No, I mean... I was uh, lucky enough to see them on their, the, the last big tour. They played at Giant Stadium mm. uh, in New York. With um, I was there because Anvil were playing with them. Mm. It was a brilliant little story. Malcolm Young had seen the movie and gave them a... Well, his son had seen the movie and told his dad, and Malcolm saw it, blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, he, they've offered the band three gigs. Three <laughs> <laughs> stadiums in the U.S. and Canada. And we all pitched up at uh, Giants, and uh, it was great for them. But when they came on, honest to goodness, it was like listening. I went out front with the, with the crowd, I had to, uh, and it was like listening to the loudest hi-fi you've ever heard. Mm. And it was that good. The sound was absolutely amazing, powerful. You could even hear the blooming bass drum squeaking, you know, then it needed oil. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Phenomenal. Absolutely brilliant, you yeah. know. And they're the epitome of a good time rock and roll band. And yeah, that's it, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, no muss, no fuss, and and people, you exactly. know, you really look at it. You look at Malcolm, and you go, "He's playing a Gresh. What? It, that's coming from a Gresh? Yeah, what the hell is that thing? Yeah, <laughs> the same old one with the pickup, and you know it. And with those words of wisdom about the legendary ACDC, we will end this segment with Chris Tangarides. And we'll pick up the conversation again next week, where Chris has a lot to talk about with Anvil. We'll talk some more great pre-stories and all kinds of other good stuff. And for those of you who are gear inclined, Chris and I will also be delving into his entire studio setup as well, and some of his tips and tricks and all that good stuff as well. So that is all coming at you next week right here on Focus on Metal. So we'll end it with just a few little bits of business. You know, just a reminder again, if Bob Nelbandian's movie Inside Metal is coming to theater near you, go and check it out. It is awesome. Good stuff. You don't want to miss that one. Also, a few days left to go up to Raven's Project on Kickstarter. So go check that out as well. And also, you know, we're heading towards December, and that is when our buddy Ethan Broche goes on tour with Jakey e. Lee's Red Dragon Cartel here on the East Coast. So you can head up to EthanBroche.com, or you can also head up to FocusOnMetal.net. Check out all the tour dates. Be sure to catch Ethan as he comes through your town. And that Jakey e. Lee guy, too. I, I hear he's a pretty good guy on guitar as well. And if you haven't heard... You know, if you're a Megadeth fan or just a metal memorabilia fan, of course, 
They're going to have a big Megadeth auction coming up in the first week of December. You can go to BackstageAuctions.com, pre-registered to get in on all the action. But I guess all kinds of cool stuff is going to be auctioned off. Road cases and Vic costume stuff and all kinds of good stuff. So, you know, like I said, if you're a Megadeth fan, a Dave Mustaine fan, just... Hey, if you're a metal fan, you're listening to the show, right? So if you can check off any of those boxes, then this might be something you want to check out. So like I said, head up to BackstageAuctions.com, pre-register for that, and get in on the Megadeth goodness. Just so as you know, we do post a lot of these kind of news things on FocusOnMetal.blogspot.com, as well as tweeting out a lot of this stuff during the week as well. So if you're not following us on Twitter, you should probably do that, Twitter.com slash FocusOnMetal. And, of course, you know, the old FocusOnMetal.net as well. We post all the episodes and other cool bits of miscellaneous metal goodness. And in case I haven't mentioned it before, you know, we do have a brand new writer on the show. Wayne Simmons has written a few reviews for us so far. Does a great job on him. And we got a brand new one by him on the review of the new one from Job for a Cowboy on uh, Metal Blade. That one is up on focusonmetal.blogspot.com. And, of course, the links are over there also to check out everything else that Wayne does as well. Cool guy doing some great writing for us. We really appreciate having Wayne on board here on Focus on Metal. That's it. That's a wrap for week three of Metal Week here on Focus on Metal. This is Scott Thompson for Richie, myself, and everybody else here on staff at Focus on Metal. Have yourselves a good metal week. Until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on metal! Everything else is insignificant. Go home.